This is Ballots and Beyond, a deeper dive into Nigeria's elections with Timisholeya and Toby Lawson. Good day, everyone. This is Timisholeya, and I'm here with Toby Lawson. And today we have as our guest... Dr. Andrew Nevin, who is the senior partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, who is here to discuss with us Nigeria's fiscal whole. This is Ballots and Beyond. Well, it's great to be here, guys. I'm really uh, looking forward to the podcast today. Yesterday, Timmy and I discussed the current currency crunch. That's a phrase I never thought I would be altering and the whole demonetization what what's your feeling about what's happening currently well specifically on the naira and trying to introduce the new naira i mean obviously this is a policy that's causing untold hardship around the nation and particularly to the most vulnerable communities right i mean it could make sense to say we're going to replace the cash currency with the new cash currency in order to kind of harm people that have acquired large amounts of cash illicitly or through corruption. But to do so in a way that harms the bottom of the pyramid, I think, is unnecessary. And, of course, the unwillingness of the powers to be to back down, it's, it's terrible. But, I mean, we're all hearing stories about people not being able to eat because they don't have access to cash or even because the banks are not working. NIB's system is terrible. I know my own bank has not been working for the last uh, 24 hours, it seems. We all know stories about people going to POS operators, and of course, in a tight market, they increase their prices. So they charge, for example, for our helper here, 6,000 naira to get 5,000 naira in cash, which is unconscionable. And of course, now we're hearing stories that's reported in the press that the price of foodstuffs is dropping. I mean, we all want food inflation to be declining, but, but this is being caused by the fact there's no cash in the system, so that the farmers are desperate to get a hold of cash. They pay their laborers in cash. They need cash. So they're willing to accept half the value of the crop in order to do that. So all of these distortions and sufferings are being introduced by a policy that, in my personal view, I can't speak on behalf of PwC, but in my personal view, is completely unnecessary. As an outsider, it's opaque to me which powers that be are really benefiting from this. But you have to imagine that someone that's putting this policy in place here is benefiting somehow from what's happening in the country. Oh, yeah. You can't speculate from now to tomorrow, but I mean, let's not bother you with that. As Timmy said in that intro, basically the biggest challenge that will face whoever becomes the next president of Nigeria are fiscal, you know, primarily. I want to draw you to comment more on something you said recently. I think it was a Naira Metrics event where you said growth primarily is the problem with Nigeria and not revenue. But some would disagree, right? Because the primary focus of the government, at least in my own observation, is always about revenue shortfall and how to get more revenue and more revenue. And of course, you could sympathize given the collapse of oil revenue, which primarily the government depends on. I just want you to expand more on that a bit. When you say growth is the primary concern, what do you mean? Well, I mean, there was this narrative that said that we have a debt problem. The Honorable Minister of Finance, Budget, and National Planning has then consistently said we don't have a debt problem, we have a revenue problem. But we've said for six or seven years, how do you collect more revenue from an economy that's not growing? 
uh, just creates a dysfunctional situation. And that's, in fact, what we've seen. So we've had official growth bouncing around between one and a half and three percent for the last six or seven years. And it dropped in COVID, came back a bit stronger, but that's lower than the population growth. So in effect, people are getting poorer and poorer per capita, at least in the official numbers. And yet the government's trying to take more revenue out. And of course, the government is desperate for revenue. One reason they're desperate for revenue is the self-inflicted oil subsidy. I mean, it's extraordinary that we collect, I don't know, we're just guessing. I can never keep track anymore of the numbers. We might collect 10 or 11 trillion naira, and yet we're spending, I think last year the estimate was 7 trillion naira, 6, 7 trillion naira on the oil subsidy. So now you've got a government who's desperate for revenue, so they're introducing all sorts of taxes and levies. And we have this myth that's going around that we're a low-tax nation. It's just simply not true. I mean... What happens is that we get all sorts of new taxes introduced. I think we've counted a PwC over 50. But the worst of it all is when you pay the tax, you don't feel like you get any service, right? I mean, you don't get anything for it. So you think of the things, why are you paying the taxes? Infrastructure, education, health care, power, security. People don't get any of those things. So not only do they pay the taxes they pay, and there's increasing pressure from the revenue service because they're under pressure from government officials. But after you pay, you then have to pay for the things you thought you were paying for with that. So that, to me, is a dysfunctional system. So what's the way out of it? Well, the only way out of it, in our view, is we have to have a bigger economy. And I can tell you, having lived through this in China, if the economy is growing 6, 8, 10% a year, then your tax revenue can grow 15, 20% a year, and people are happy to pay that tax. But what's happening now is simply not going to work because the social contract is broken. There's no growth in per capita incomes. And so the government trying to bring more people into the formal system to tax them. I mean, I was associated with a small company that basically went under, was not successful. We have a harsh business environment. Solar, you know, despite the fact that it didn't make any money, lost money, we still have the revenue service trying to collect corporate income tax, CIT, on it because they have these huge revenue targets. So from our viewpoint, and too often in this country, we don't talk about the root causes. The root causes of the fiscal pressure, one is the foil subsidy, which is consuming the nation. I mean, the number reported in the papers is close to 3% of the official GDP, which is supposed to be your entire budget deficit shouldn't be more than 3%. So the foil subsidy alone takes that whole deficit. But the second reason is we're simply not growing. So instead of standing up and saying we have a revenue problem, I think the federal government should be thinking, why are we not growing? I mean, this is the biggest economic opportunity of the planet. As I said, I lived in China. I lived there for 10 years. I went to China the first time in 1983. I watched the greatest economic miracle in the history of the world up to then. I'm heavily involved in India. I'm watching another economic miracle unfold. But the next economic miracle should be in Africa and particularly here in Nigeria. So it has the greatest economic opportunity in the world, in a world where a lot of economies are shrinking. And yet but we're not I, growing. I, I, is that true? I've heard you talk about, you know, I remember the business day conference I think last year, where you talk about the population, the demographic dividend that should be coming. Africa and Nigeria in particular. But when people pose this question of, oh, well, you know, is it a revenue question or growth question? When I look at the budget that has been implemented by the federal government in the last few years, what I, I see, and again, what I see is a spending problem, right? You know, you look at the level of revenue that is realistic or expected, you look at the budgets, and they don't make any sense. You know, we've gone in 2014 from, you know, maybe a $5 trillion budget to a $17 trillion budget to a $19 trillion budget. Like, it's always childish to reduce economics to oikonomos, the laws of the household, but it really does look like just reckless spending. 
Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. You know, the angle that I focused on for that perspective is the complexity of the federal government, the number of agencies, the lack of implementation of the Orange Shady Report. What I've said about this in the past is, look, the government is not using the money it gets wisely. So it spends $7 trillion on the FOIL subsidy. It spends trillions of naira on dubious agencies that are not delivering. Not only are they not delivering value, they're a negative because then you have another agency that's trying to collect taxes and fees from either corporations or companies or people or the informal sector. So the fact is, again, we don't attack the root cause. So, so the Orange Shea report was done in 2013. His Excellency President Buhari assented to it in 2020, March 2020, April, just the beginning of COVID. And yet there's been no action. But it was interesting this morning because a senior official from the Ministry of Budget, sorry, Finance, Budget, and National Planning came out in the press this morning and said, look, the legislature continues to create new agencies. These agencies aren't going to get funded because there is no funding for them. So I think you're exactly right that you know, there is this issue of growth and we need to grow, but there's also this issue of the wise spending. And the way I would characterize it is the social contract is broken. There was an old social contract that said, we need government revenue, but we won't ask the population for it. We'll just get it from oil. So we don't ask for anything. We don't give you anything. And we could debate the merits of the social contract, but at a certain level, it's kind of fair, right? So you get on with your life, deal with your own problems. We'll get on with what we do in the government. We've got this machine that spits out money in, in NPC, and we won't bother each other. What's happened now yes. is... The social contract has been changed by one side that said, actually, we said we wouldn't bother you, but now we're going to bother you because the oil machine is broken. And, of course, the oil machine being broken is, again, self-inflicted. I mean, I and didn't so what that means is they get into pensions, you know, like, yeah, not only do they, like, tax you more, if you're an equity shareholder in a bank, like, they dip into your central bank reserves, they dip into your pensions arbitrarily and forcibly, like, it's not just that one party has broken that social contract. They have completely shredded it and been almost rapacious in the way that they have gone after every shred of money that the citizens have are not currently spending. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. But this is also one reason why I've been so focused in recent months on brain capital. We should be investing in brains because it's harder for the government to extract value from brains. You, know, you can't take your pension with you, but you can leave. And like we've truly seen that. Like if you invest a great deal in brain capital, I just have to be honest, like they're going to leave. I get that. But I I'm kind of on the side of the individual and all of these these battles. Yeah, okay, so I mean, yeah, so totally, totally, totally broken social contract, totally rapacious public sector, federal public sector at this present time. And no one's gonna show up with any capital because they look at the situation. I mean they look at you know numerous situations where the capital has been stripped. I mean, no foreign company wants to do oil and gas in the country. All the discos have lost money, all the manufacturers have lost money. I mean, you have a company like Dokata in Lagos, so they come and I think they invested maybe five million dollars. His Excellency Governor Sanrolo came out, welcomed them to the community. They right. bring, he, like they, a photo op in his very office. Right. And they said, you know, they're gonna bring safety to the system, they've got helmets, they're registered, we know who they so are. They just, they, they and then they closed it. Yeah, they they complied with the government standards as to the highest specifications that were needed. And then, nevertheless, they were arbitrarily regulated out of the system. Right, so So very harsh environment. You know, I get approached by other PwC firms around the world to talk to their clients about investing in Nigeria. 
even though we're the biggest opportunity in theory, as I said, I'm very hard-pressed right now to tell people to invest because of the history, the way that the country has treated capital, both domestic investors, not particularly restricted to foreign investors, but the way they treated domestic investors, the way the was being treated in many cases, and the way foreign investors are treated. Why would you put your capital right now in Nigeria? And until we figure that out, we're going to continue to really suffer. Okay, I don't want to get too distracted because you mentioned the Aron Saeed report, and I just wanted maybe a minute on that. It took about five years, so it was finished in 2013. Do you really think that a report that began in, say, 2008, right, on the state of the Nigerian federal government, has any relevance today at all? It seems like one of those, like, holy grail things where it's like, oh, if only we could implement this thing. When you actually look through it, it's talking about fiscal structures, agencies that, like, don't exist or are completely different from what they were before. I worry that it was the easiest thing Buhari ever did, finding its implementation, because it's almost impossible. Right. To me, the RSA reports a symbol, right? I mean, so, again, we had a system that was fit for purpose in a different era. Why were all these agencies created? They weren't created to add value to Nigeria. They were created to provide jobs for certain people, patronage from the political system when there were resources to do that. And you didn't care whether they did any work or not. And everyone likes an agency because they can be the DG and have their own board and control their own bank account. Uh, you know, the system is no longer fit for purpose. I mean, it's, it's destroying the country. So, you know, one way or another, we need to deal with it. Eliminate agencies, reduce complexity, fold some things and stop some things that are just you know, completely unhelpful. Although um, you have to ask that. yourself, what do you do with those people? That's always the part, part about civil service reform. It's really hard to tell a 27-year-old with three children who has been brought up in the expectation that they're exchanging commercial remuneration in order for the security of a government job, and then telling them that, like, oh, you know, they have to go out now and, like, do what? Well, 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 yeah, I mean, you'd actually be better off as a country just to pay them to do nothing, right? I mean, them going to work actively harms the country, because it creates this complexity, creates more burden on the companies to deal with multiple regulators, more taxation. If you just said, we'll just pay you, stay home, or we'll pay you four or five years' salary, and you know, maybe you can go to your state and help them out. Yeah, so like, we would that, clearly like, be better off. That buyout, right? Like buying back their pension by pensioning them off, essentially. Yeah. Um, uh, like, you know, I went there about a year ago. You know, the Ajaxa Steel Company has an eight-story building full of civil servants. People start work there, and, and they want to hire as DGs. That is paying people to do nothing. Right. But as I said, I still think it would be preferable to pay people to do nothing than to have them in post at an agency that's creating complexity and confusion and costs for the entire economy. I agree with you. Certainly philosophically, I agree. It's like then at least the productive part of the economy could be unencumbered. But thinking through, reminding myself of what the is called, it's called balance and beyond. And what we're trying to see is that you were called up by whoever of the four realistic candidates won. And during the transition phase, and they're thinking about the fiscal position, the sources of revenue are available. If you found yourself in that position, the consigliere of president-elect, what, what would you think, what would be your big concern in terms of like Nigeria's financial position? Well, I mean, I think we need foreign exchange, right? So where do we get foreign exchange? First off, I'd actually start by doing something that my colleague, 
Taiwan or Delhi says, I think 95% of the revenue, according to Taiwan, according to us, comes from six or seven taxes. So the first thing I do is just eliminate the rest of those taxes uh, because they just create complexity and cost. The second thing, you know, I would just do the foil subsidy and we have to float the Naira. What's happening now just creates criminality, right? Round tripping, people trying to get access to the dollars, the official rate. We have such an open economy. We have so much trade that goes in and out, informal or formal people. It just doesn't work. I mean, the idea that your bank gets involved with the CBN to get you $4,000 if you're Nigerian to go traveling is just simply an absurdity, right? And I mean, we went to the central bank governor back in 2017, 2018 on this. He didn't listen. I said, look, there's a mathematical certainty that if you have this exchange rate regime, you won't get investment in the country. Well, that's proved to be true. No one's going to invest. And the situation has to improve in it. So, you know, deal with those issues. But in terms of where can we get foreign exchange? I mean, it's extraordinary. We're sitting here at $80 oil and we're not prospering and the Naira is not strengthening. I mean, and the reason for this, of course, everyone understands is, I mean, it's partially the foil subsidy, which is consuming us, but the even larger piece is the drop in production. This is what finances the government. This is what finances our FX needs is oil still. I mean, the diaspora and oil. Diaspora is doing very well, but the oil collapsed to 1 million barrels a day. How is that possible? When I came, we were 2 million barrels a day. So you, the most important source of FX you have, or along with the diaspora, the most important source we've let collapse. So that has to be top of the priority list. Then the second, of course, is the diaspora, which you need to nurture. And, I mean, I actually think the administration has really recognized this, I mean, both at the federal level and the state level. And you're going to see every year a 10% increase in the diaspora remittances, not only because the diaspora is getting bigger, but also the diaspora is also moving up the seniority in the places where they're doing very well, like the U.S. and the U.K. And then the third source of FX is we started to talk a lot about our services, exporting brains like the diaspora, but where the brains remain in Nigeria. So we're seeing more and more companies because there's a global talent shortage, global people shortage. I mean, outside of Africa, the number of children's declining, the number of adults, working age adults is declining, and people need societies are aging, particularly, for example, in, in Europe, but really all over the world, Eastern Asia, parts of South America, and Canada's aging, that's why it's taking so many immigrants. The people that are going to do the work are Africans, increasingly. So it's very important that we participate in those global value chains. People who can work, do the work here, stay in their communities here. They don't have to necessarily come to Lagos. So that third pillar is export services. And the reason we say that is that exporting goods is not really feasible in the medium term here. I mean, we have a very harsh business environment. We have difficulty with infrastructure. We're difficult with industrial power. And those things, I think, will come over five or ten years. But what we can do in the short term is focus more on exporting services, which we already do, Nollywood, music, sports, finance, access is on the march across Africa, and of course things like software development, business process outsourcing. I mean, Amal Hassan, that people I know by now, the national heroin company Outsource Global has 1,500 employees in northern Nigeria, Abuja, and Kaduna that do high-end services for companies in Japan, Canada, the UK, the United States. So I would focus on the export of services in the short term, and then it gives us a little bit of room so we can get more organized around exporting things like agricultural goods. So those those would be my initial priorities. The other thing I would do is, which I think has been a big success in the past decade in this country, is states really understand they need to take responsibility for their own economic development. So as the federal government, I think they should continue to you know, work with the state governments, make it clear what the state governments have to do. What, if they want to have a prosperous society, what are the sorts of things they need to do and give them room those. So those would be where I would start with if I became president of Nigeria.
Yeah, so you used the word myth when you were talking about the revenue question. So before we move to other matters, I just wanted to do a bit of myth busting briefly because we've talked about beyond, right, what the next administration has to do. But, I mean, we still have an election and people are still campaigning and people are still being misled, in my opinion, about some of the ideas surrounding this. So some very clever people would take revenue to GDP ratio or debt to GDP ratio to assert that Nigeria just does not collect enough revenue. And that really is the problem we have. And I mean, they'll compare it to China 20, 30 years ago and say, I mean, look at this. Uh, it's low. We just have to collect more because the state has to have money to do some of these big push ideas. How would you respond to that specific strain of argument? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, my friends over at the World Bank say this all the time. Oh, we need more revenue mobilization. Remember, we still have a large informal economy. So the reason that our revenue to GDP looks low is not because taxes are low. It's because a relatively small part of the economy, less than half, is in the formal economy. So, But being in the informal economy is a choice. So people choose to be in the informal economy. And, of course, the Honorable Minister of Finance, Budget, and National Planning, she had a push. She recognized this, wanted to bring more companies into the formal economy, traders into the formal economy. She made some steps in that direction. But the truth is, it's a choice, and we haven't made it attractive enough. So people want to stay in the informal economy. They'll stay small and less productive. So then the companies that are in the formal economy really get squeezed with these multiple taxations and various fees and multiple agencies they're dealing with. And, of course, they don't get the services. So this myth that we're a low-tax environment is incorrect. And I think the World Bank has committed, in my view, exactly the sin, where they've looked at these numbers and say, oh, we only collect 10% or 6 percent of GDP and federal government revenue. Therefore, the solution is to collect more. But it goes back to what we were discussing a little bit earlier about the social contract. You know, federal government is not using this money wisely. We're going to kick against this. People who are asked to pay more taxes to support the overbloated civil service or the high cost of governance with the undisguised corruption. I mean, that's the said, I'm a little bit disappointed, my friends, in the World Bank. The IRS is always saying, you know, raise for assumptions. You know, yeah. and like they always come and they're like, you know, VAT should be 15%. Like that's a mother buying milk for her children. That's who you're targeting. Yeah, I know. I wish the World Bank would stand up and say exactly what we were saying earlier, which is actually this, we need to work on the social contract before you can even think about trying to raise more <laughs> tax revenue. So you mentioned a resource that I wanted to be able to link to. You mentioned that one of your colleagues, Mr. Oyedele or something, has listed the six or seven productive taxes. Yes. I want to be able to put that link. Is there a report or something or a tweet? I want to put it I in. I mean, yeah, Kai Wong is more vocal than me in this country. He's on television all the time. And he's, okay, he's, so I'll, I'll, find yeah, that. I'll find that. So, and he can be more, he's more directly critical than I am. I mean, I'm a visitor and I'm Canadian, so I, I stay a little bit more polite. But he's very direct about some of these issues. But it's been the PwC position for years, just six or seven taxes. That's 95% of the revenue. You know, the rest of them should simply be eliminated. If you actually wanted to make the country work. But of course, a lot of these taxes and levies are not to make the country work. They're for a particular agency, so it's got its own internally generated revenue. It can do what it wants with it without really much accountability. I want to talk about inflation a bit. I know you're trying to move further and further back from the labor, but you're still an economist, last I checked. 
So inflation is obviously a huge deal in Nigeria. Inflation shock, as especially on food, has pushed a lot of people and households into poverty. And earlier we we talked about the exchange rate management. Uh, the World Bank, <laughs> the World Bank has taken a beating on this particular episode. As said that the exchange rate regime is a significant contributor to the current runaway inflation that Nigeria is experiencing. And that's something that the next government would have to deal with. Do you agree with that? And how would you really advise the next administration to deal with inflation? Should we just keep raising NPR? Well, I mean, the thing is that I've, I've said consistently over the years, the NPR is a little bit like F1, right? I mean, it's the driver in the car making those micro adjustments. But if you put an F1 driver into a 1950 F1 car, it's only going to go at the speed of a 1950 car. I mean, it doesn't fix any of the structural problems in the, in the nation. We were saying earlier, we need FX. And there's only really three sources in the, in the short to medium term. One is, oil and gas exports, two is uh, nurturing the diaspora, and three is growing the brain exports that are the service exports for people who remain in Nigeria. So, and I think they should work on all three, but I mean, the root cause, in my view, of the absolute current crisis with the currency is allowing oil production to slip two million barrels a day when I came to the country 15 years ago to one million barrels a day. And now they're trying to bring it back up. And it's just a tragedy that it was allowed to slip. If we got it back to 1.6, it would really go a long way to stabilizing the Naira. If we got it to 2.0, we'd probably start to see some appreciation in the Naira. But as long as the Naira continues to depreciate, we're going to see Naira inflation. And of course, the other aspect of this is just what's the real rate of inflation? So I was listening to Professor Joseph, the brilliant young um, Development Bank of Nigeria chief economist, and he's part of the government effectively, but he said in his view inflation's 50%. If you really look at what people buy in the baskets they they buy, and when people hear this 20% and then you hear about what people are paying in the market for products, 20% doesn't feel right. So the only way we're going to bring inflation under control and get a strength in Naira is if we improve our FX position. And the, you know, given the short-term answer to that, but I mean, we have to get oil production up. I mean, why would you take your largest export-producing asset that you have control over? Because, of course, the diaspora, it's their money, not the government's money. But, I mean, NNPC is the government's money. It's the people's money. Yet you allowed oil production in the country to decline by more than 50% over the last years. I mean, what an incredible tragedy. Don't you think you should be paying attention to the asset that's kind of keeping the nation going and keeping Abuja going? If you live in Abuja and are a government official without the oil revenues, very difficult but times. Aren't, aren't they driving them out? Like, Equinor, I know, is divesting. You know, they essentially, they drove addicts out, right? Um, yeah, well, exactly. So, it's a, you know, like, what's the reason for it? I mean, this harsh operating environment. I mean, no international oil company wants to be onshore in Nigeria because of the challenges that they face from many dimensions. And they're the leaders in this, in the federal government. It hasn't worked, right? So... So um, do you think the PIA costing it was a damn squid? It had been held up for as long as I've been back in Nigeria. And I work in gas. It's always been like, oh, just pass the PIA, pass the PIB. And, uh, you know, previous ministers did the petroleum. You know, they chopped it up into four parts, passed it through. The passing was supposed to herald a massive change and a sudden inflow of investment. And to my mind, it hasn't manifested. I'm sure that's a topic in and of itself, but it's just interesting because everyone always said, 
just pass the TIA and then everything will be fine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of part of a broader thing that's going on, which is, I mean, there has been a change in the last decade where at least the political leaders and the policy makers use the word enabling in business environments. So they stand up in forums and they say, we need an enabling business environment. And there is now recognition that we need private sector capital, which was not true 10 years ago. So in the Nigerian development plan that just came out, so the one that replaced the ERGP, it basically says over the plan period, we need um, 300 trillion naira of investment which is good, and 85% of that investment has to come from the private sector, so they recognize that, which is good. But then they haven't made the further connection that says, under what conditions will the private sector bring that capital? And the way capital's been treated now, they're not going to bring it. I mean, so you look at what's happened in electricity. Anyone who took a chance in electricity has lost their money. Manufacturing, automobiles, solar businesses. I had a solar business that failed. I mean, anyone that's taken a chance in Nigeria in the last while has lost their capital. Okada, as we talked about. So until the government really starts to make some progress on truly creating an enabling environment and a, and a good home for capital, capital's not coming. So any strategy that relies on capital coming the next two or three years is bound to fail. Mm, I may be wrong about this, but one thing I sort of observed, especially after the passing of the PIE and restructuring in quote of the NMPC governance structure, we seem to be moving towards the SOE model. So like maybe they are trying to turn NMPC to Gazprom or Aramco, which I don't know, kind of sort of fits into what we have been doing in terms of development policy in the past six, seven years, which is this sort of big push, infrastructure projects, infrastructure-led development, of course, at at the expense of... I want to interrupt you. Like, when you talk about Ephraim or Aramco in particular, the level of human capital development that those countries put behind staff in their state-owned oil companies and state-owned exploration and energy companies cannot be compared to Nigeria. The only companies in Nigeria that are putting that kind of human capital development are probably Shell and LNG. I'm not even sure to tell. When you talk to anyone in the industry, this is where I work, right? The level of human capital development that you would need, you would need to go back 20 to 15 years in order to have the people who are at the current state where they're senior enough that they should be able to do this job to actually be able to do it. Right? Yeah. So, and this is a red herring. Yeah, I get, right? And I completely agree. But, I mean, given that fact, but it, it seemed to be the direction we seem to be going. Like I said, I may be wrong, but it seemed to be the approach of whoever is running energy policy or the industry right now, which, again, speaking of the show, it's something that the next administration is going to have to deal with. So my question then for Andrew would be, how do you then restructure the energy industry, at least to get more export, more FX and investment? Well, it is a national asset, the NNPC, and it's there for the benefit of Nigerians. I mean, Ramco, certainly the Norwegian equivalent, show that it can be run very well. I guess what we've advocated in the past is Ramco did the same thing. Some listing maybe not of NMPC itself, but of um, subsidiary. And that would do a few things. It would make the subsidiary subject to Nigerian stock exchange rules of governance, transparency, etc. And would give Nigerians a chance to directly invest in those companies 
you still want them to remain government owned, or largely government owned, but you can imagine it's floating 10% of, for example, NLNG, very successful company. That direction of travel, I think, would really help. And it would really help clarify the relationship between operating companies that have shareholders, including public shareholders, and you know, government agencies, the upstream agency, for example, regulatory agency, which the PIB has tried to, or PIA, sorry, has tried to push forward. Um, it would also help develop the capital markets in the country that people could buy a piece of some of the NNPC assets on that. But it also relates to, uh, I think, a very positive announcement. I'm a real optimist, actually, about Nigeria. I think we're going to really be in a good place in two or three years because every day I sort of see progress, people doing things despite all the challenges we've discussed. But I, there was a major thing that was in the press last week that people need to realize I think is really good for the country, which is the movement in mafia. So this is the attempt of the federal government of Nigeria to corral all the assets that it has in one place. And we wrote a paper maybe three and a half years ago now on dead assets. And we said, look, a major problem in Nigeria is dead assets. And the federal government of Nigeria has a lot of dead assets. So adjectives of steel and the refineries, national stadium, national theater, real estate assets in many states, including in Lagos. Lots and lots of things in Lagos because, of course, it used to be the capital. So this group was set up now to be the ones that are the stewards of those assets, this company. And it's basically private sector led. It has a proper board, has excellent management. So I was really encouraged by that. And I think Mafi is going to make a big difference because they're going to take all these assets that have been dead and consuming money in Nigeria, consuming resources, and for each asset, figure out a strategy that can start to really create some value for Nigeria. So I think that's going to take us in the right direction. But of course, the NNPC assets fit into those government assets. I don't think they fit under the MAFI framework. I'm not quite sure. But they can also, their value can be enhanced, but particularly by having, as I said, a little bit of like a partial quote of maybe 20% of the shares to improve the governance and transparency. That's the direction I would go in. Let's talk about the central bank for a bit. I don't know how much you want to say about that. Because it's something that the next administration is going to have to deal with, which is issues surrounding the independence of the central bank. The central bank has been doing a lot of development financing over the years. And there's also the big issue of the ways and means, which is the fiscal financing that no one really knows what to do with it. And it's basically been handed over to the next administration. So, like, I'm going to roll two questions into one. Do you think that the central bank has been, should I say, inevitably politicized, at least for the next few years? And secondly, on the ways and means issue, right? A friend of mine, Sean Smith, raised a question that it's become a bit of a moral hazard problem. Like, if you securitize this loan at a government-preferred rate of 9% or whatever, what stops the next administration from doing that? I mean, why go to the capital market or the private bond market to borrow at the higher rate when you can just have the CVN advance you credit, which you can then choose to pay back at whatever rate you choose in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a very good question. So, I mean, starting with that issue, I mean, you know, what is a central bank? A central bank has the right to create money. And that's a pretty important right in society. And, of course, governments benefit from that through when you create money. There's an economics term called seniorage from that. But the problem with it is 
if you create too much money, you, you kind of destabilize the financial system, destabilize the currency, and in effect, that's what's happened. Yeah, so that's why there is this separation of powers, why central banks have inflation targets. So the fiscal side of the house isn't tempted to say the way we can solve our you know, We have to actually solve our problems, not through a monetary solution. And of course, if you go to the monetary solution, it's a little bit like an addiction, right? It becomes impotent over time, right? Because you get inflation and people don't want to hold your currency. And that's where we kind of got to. So I think there's got to be a reset. I mean, one thing, I mean, it applies both within Nigeria and, of course, around the world, is the question of confidence. So the question is, how long would it take if there was more of a change back to the kind of traditional independence of central banks? How long would it take to build up confidence? And I think you're exactly right, kind of two or three years. I mean, I remember... His Royal Highness Mohammed Sinisi II in 2013 when he gave his last Bankers Committee retreat in Calabar and he, CNBC was interviewing him and they asked him, why did you start this intervention fund? And he said, well, if not us, who? If not now, you know, when? And his point at that point was Central Bank was the only one thinking about agriculture, so it introduced the Agricultural Intervention Fund to move things forward. The problem is, unfortunately, in my view, uh, and others to do, the central bank has become too involved in things that should be part of other parts of the financial system. So we have intervention funds and MSMEs. I think we have intervention funds in the creative industry. We continue to have intervention funds like the Anchor Borrower Program in agriculture. But you know, at that same time, we've had other institutions come up, Development Bank in Nigeria, BOI is doing very well. So by housing everything in the CBN, I think it really kind of clouds the way we kind of manage the economy in the country. And of course, there's a lot of complaints about a number of the intervention programs, even allegations about them essentially, again, being another conduit for corruption. So I think coming through this election cycle, it would be, I think, very helpful for the country if there's some rethinking of how to return, make sure the central bank is kind of focused on its core mandate. I mean, it has very good human capital compared to many other institutions here, very smart people there. A lot of experience. I mean, the MPC, I think, is very technically strong. So I think kind of coming back to that core mandate and not allowing the federal government to use it as a backdoor means to finance large fiscal deficits would really help the country. But for that to gain confidence, you'd have to do that for two or three years before people would start to actually believe it. Mm-hmm. Thinking about it realistically, could you assume the office of president of Nigeria and close that door as the new president? Would it even be feasible? Yes, it's an ad hoc method of funding. Like, could you realistically shut that door off to yourself if you became president? Or would it just be a thing that you just had to do? Well, remember, so much of our budget deficit comes from the foil subsidies. So if you deal with the... And of course, if you weren't borrowing so much, interest rates would come down. So you would also have savings there. So, I mean, there is a virtuous circle that says you're no longer borrowing from the foil subsidy. Interest rates decline. Economy grows a little bit faster and takes the pressure off having to use this mechanism. And then, you know, can you trust yourself to do the 9% securitization one-off? You know, that's hard to say. Governments can't bind themselves. But, I mean, to get out of where we're at today, I think probably the 9% securitization is the best solution. But So you think that that's a good – you think it's a well, well, of course, think, it's ridiculous to us. We're like, where did this $50 billion that we're going to have to pay for come from? Or what was it spent? It's a real, pardon my friend, shit burger to announce at the last hour as you're about to leave, oh, by the way, right? Right, but I mean, whether it's securitized or not, it's still a debt there. I mean, at one level, you could simply just, you know, remember, the central bank creates money, right? I mean, ultimately, the federal government of Nigeria, like all governments, can create money. So, I mean, it could just simply, in effect, repudiate it. It owes the money to itself. 
So yes. there's kind of like a metaphysical thing. So they, you know, the other option is rather than pay nine percent, they can just say, let's just wipe it off the balance sheets of the central bank and we'll pretend it never happened. And I don't know. I think you could probably do that once and then not go back to it. Will subsequent administrations be that disciplined? Is you know, I hope so. I mean, I think that depends <clears throat> too on you know, what the electorate does. I mean, as the saying goes, you get the leaders you deserve. What's going on fundamentally in these situations is you're under a little bit of pressure. So rather than fix the problem, you kind of use the monetary tools to kind of skate through the problem. But of course, in that created more money. And ultimately, if you do that too much, you create inflation, all sorts of problems. But it's not just Nigeria that did it. If you go back to the great financial crisis of 2008, and you know, I had the privilege of leading the writing of PwC's understanding of the financial crisis back then. So we had the financial crisis. You had massive bailouts of wealthy people and banks and investment banks by the average person in developed nations. But rather than deal with the structural difficulties, the central banks and their governments took the decision to effectively extend and pretend. So you remember all these years of ultra-low interest rates, quantitative easing, quantitative easing one, two, three, four. And of course, people, after it went through six or seven years, people said, oh, this seems okay. It doesn't cause inflation. Well, inevitably, it's the mathematics of it. You create enough money, you're eventually going to create inflation, first through assets and now through goods and prices. So it's not just a unique Nigerian problem to use these unorthodox methods to try to delay dealing with fundamental structural issues. But I think if you had the right government, you know, whether they did the securitization or a total write-off, if they were credible in doing the right things, they could move forward. And you know, they just need to do it through action. But as I said before, what would really help this country is a Naira strengthening, which means getting oil production up getting more remittances out of the diaspora, which means treating it strategically, getting more services exported because it's hard to export physical goods in our environment. So, I mean, if you get a situation where the next government continues to tap that well of unorthodox monetary policy, you know, then you're tending in a direction of kind of total monetary collapse. You know, what point will people refuse to hold the Naira? There's a reason why cryptocurrency is a big deal here, right? Because people perceive the Naira rightly is going to decline. So at some point, they're going to say, well, we don't want to use the Naira. You know, we're going to dollarize, we're going to go some other direction. And I think we're getting potentially in that zone where the country becomes dollarized if we continue to abuse the Naira. Hmm. I had a question, and I'm asking this question because you said that the crucial thing is to improve the FX position, particularly the FX input situation of the country. For non-economists, why is that so important in a sense? I mean, I, we don't need a huge amount of FX, but there are things that we need to function that we're not going to make ourselves. It's not a bad thing. I mean, there's this other school of thought of self-sufficiency, but you know, it just doesn't exist in the world. I mean, no country apart from maybe the U.S. can really be self-sufficient. And even if we wanted that as a goal, if it was feasible, it would take 20 or 30 years. Because you know, we need airplanes from outside, we need computers, we need telephones. I mean, there are lots of things we can produce internally, building materials, for example, but there's some things that we can't. So we need the FX. Why do we need more than we have? Well, because the Naira keeps depreciating, so we don't have enough. We don't have enough because we used to get net $20, $30 billion from oil, and now we're getting zero. So we still have the same import needs, and we don't have the dollars. I mean, if we didn't have the diaspora, I think the economy would effectively collapse at this stage, right? We wouldn't have the ability to import anything. The other thing that would really help our FX position, really help our country, is if we did a better job in education. You know, we lose in health because we lose a lot of FX. People go abroad to be educated. They go abroad to get their health care, but particularly education. 
I'm guessing it's at least three or four billion dollars. If we had a better education system here, we wouldn't stop hemorrhaging that. So rather than try to build a factory that does import substitution for some low-value product made in China, we would actually be better off putting that money in universities where people would say, actually, I can get a good education in Nigeria and I don't have to have my parents scrambling around to get British pounds at 900 to the Naira, which is making them suffer. So, so in terms of import substitution, I'd rather see import substitution focused not on manufactured goods, but more focused on education and health. That's a very important point. Yeah. So before we came online, Timmy and I, you caught us having one simple conversation. You didn't want to bring it up, but I will. The scale of the challenges, I know we've talked about it. Again, being on the job and doing all these things, it's a totally, totally different ballgame altogether. So in your opinion, settle this for us. Who exactly do you think would want this job? Well, people think they want the job, then they find out it's more complex. I would say one thing about being the president of Nigeria, and I have said this publicly before, Nigeria is a self-organizing people, the self-organizing nature. People in Nigeria are not passive. They're doing things all the time. So if I was giving advice to the next His Excellency President of Nigeria, I would say, you know, you don't have to do everything. The federal government just needs to do a few things. And many of our problems stem from having too much complexity, too many programs. The programs then become sources of corruption or diversion, so people focus on that. Whereas if you just let states and individuals get on with what they need to do for themselves and did a few things around security, around bandwidth, not even power. I mean, I think power should be a state matter, for example. I don't think the federal government would help enormously if said, actually, it's not our problem. You do it. So I think that that would really help because if you look at all the challenges we face and you think you as the federal government and ultimately as his excellency, the president, have to solve all those problems, it's absolutely daunting. But if you think to yourself, actually, there's 200 million Nigerians, incredible energy level, young people want to do things, they want education, they want to contribute to their communities, let me just do a few things and let the 200 million people work together to do things, individual states. I mean, there's been huge progress in the last decade in terms of state-led development, huge progress in terms of people who have stepped up to solve complex problems, even outside of the government. I was with a very senior Nigerian the other day whose NGO does amazing things in Kano, for example, in health and education and micro lending. He's doing this with his group of people just because they're from Kano and they want to make a better Kano and it's making a big difference. So, so I think if the president says, how do we work with all Nigerians to make it better and we don't need to do so much. So, for example, we're not going to do electricity. I think the task becomes manageable. Well, I mean... So thank you very much, Dr. Andrew Lennon, partner and chief economist of PwC West Africa. Your insights have actually really extremely in attempting to frame this discussion, which is in advance of the elections, what should we really be discussing and thinking about Nigeria as regards the economy and the next administration? Because I think a lot of people are trying to focus on making sure that they make the right well, yeah, no, I think that's a very good question. And I have to say, I mean, it's been very difficult the last eight years. I was obviously in the country when in 2015. I mean, I was very optimistic in these eight years we would make real progress. I mean, there were three elements of the APC campaign at that time, which were corruption, security, and the economy. I think a lot of Nigerians would say that there hasn't been any progress, so we've gone backwards on all three. I think what it really highlights for Nigerians is you need to choose the right leader. Um, yes. And so this choice really matters. If you choose the right leader, then 
And she said, I'm actually quite optimistic. If the country chooses the right leader, in two or three years, I think we could be in a pretty good place in this country. There's enough people trying to do the right thing around the country and with the right leader. To go back to Lagos, His Excellency, Governor Tanubu, when he came in in the early 2000s, he had a very good team around him at the time. Uh, there was a crisis, fiscal crisis, with the federal government not wanting to send money to Lagos. So Lagos basically said it was responsible for its own development. And many of the things that you see happening in Lagos started with that group of people. And I think you know, we can do that at the federal level. So I disagree a little bit with the states don't know what to do. I mean, I think every state has its strengths. And so I always ask people I bump into a meeting with, you know, what state has a governor doing interesting things that you wouldn't expect? And it's, it's just interesting. You hear about every state, not quite every state, but many states where governors are trying to do the right thing on that. So I don't really accept that the federal government has to be responsible for state development. I think every state can figure out from where it's at now, you know, what's the path that would make the most difference for them. I mean, thank you so much for your time. No, it's been a great pleasure. It's been an honor for me to be a small part of the Nigerian story for the last 15 years. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Nevin for taking the time to so patiently um, explain his position on Nigeria's fiscal holds to us and anticipate our next guest, Fola, who will be discussing with us the White Elephant Projects that one would think about. You know, you think about at least two of the major candidates have discussed at great length what they feel about privatization, what they feel about state-owned enterprises, what they feel about nationalization. And so we really want to get into to discuss the question of all of the infrastructure that currently exists why is it not operating, which ones are operable, what's happening with the refineries. Uh